Welcome to the Thinking Tree Podcast, a production of Ecoholics Private Limited. Ever found yourselves entangled into the web of economic concepts? They are pretty freakish to be honest. But if you don't understand how it works, then you should definitely keep listening. Thinking Tree brings to you the best minds from the world of economics to talk about the current matters of importance and the freakish way in which they affect our lives. The show is strictly for educational purposes. The opinions expressed on the show are personal to the individuals appearing in the show and not those of Thinking Tree Ecoholics Private Limited. The show is not intended to offend or defame any individual, entity, caste, community, race or religion or to denigrate any institution, person, living or dead. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hello and welcome to Ecoholics Thinking Tree series. Today we have with us very distinguished personality, Professor Sebastian Morris. He is currently working as a professor at a prestigious Indian Institute of Management, Ahmedabad. Welcome, sir. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Today's topic is very interesting topic. Look East, Act East, Follow East, India's growth story in comparison to the East Asian model. Now, you know, Indian economy took a major turn in the year 1991 when we decided to shift from license Raj and enter the era of liberalization, privatization and globalization. In the face of growing unemployment and the restless energy embodied in the Indian youth, maybe a similar shift of economic stance is the need of the hour. Many economists suggest the East Asian model for India to become a $5 trillion economy by the year 2024-25. What is this model? Whether it is feasible for India? What are the major differences in approach between East Asian countries and India? Are a few of the questions that we will have answered today in conversation with Professor Morris. To begin with, sir, I was reading a popular article published by the Hindu titled Inappropriate Template for the Legitimate Target. The writer suggests East Asian model for India to achieve a $5 trillion target by 2024-25. First of all, what is the East Asian model in reference to the whole export-led growth versus laissez-faire debate? Well, good. You asked a very interesting question and I think it's going to be particularly important for India you know, going forward. See, the first thing to recognize is that 20th century industrializations, particularly post-World War II, and the continuing industrializations, when I say industrializations, I really mean the economic transformation okay, yes. that is becoming an advanced country, is all about East Asia. Because there are no other independent economic transformations starting from World War II. All others either completed their transformation in this period, which they had started early. So it becomes very, very important to understand the East Asian model. Because these are the only countries which have done so. All others may have grown, they may have raised their incomes, you know, but their prospects of pushing all the way to being an advanced country are very weak or not there. You know, notable examples would be the Latin American. They have been middle-income countries now for what almost a century. Okay. But East Asia has come from behind and overtaken them. East Asian economies have lesser advantages as compared to Latin American, but they have done far better. Okay. See, the other reason why it's important for India is that uh, you know our endowments, particularly land-man ratios, population density, that sort of thing, is fairly close to East Asia. I mean, we can always find quite a number of countries whose endowments ratios are similar to that of India. See, a third reason which I think, which I can think about, you know, why East Asia is important is, you know, because, you see, I can only quote the Anna Karenina principle, okay, that unhappy families are unhappy in a huge variety of ways, okay. So, there's no great point in studying unhappy families, except to correct them. However, happy families are a great deal of, you know, similarity. So, in other words, all those who have successfully transformed East Asian as well as the earlier countries, which are now the rich countries, they all show certain essential characteristics. The differences are contingent on their size, because of their size, and because of the time they started the process. So, in economics, we have an idea of late industrialization. And the first thing I would like to say is East Asian industrializations or economic transformations are essentially a type of late industrialization or late economic transformation where the external markets are being actively addressed. Okay. And it's essentially a catch up 
a very successful strategy of catching up you see now uh, yet you know the east asian model is is not you know something which is well understood okay just to give an example even the great krugman for instance you know during the east asian crisis made a point that look east asian growth is all hollow because their total factor productivity share and growth is a pathetic 20% or less now my counter to that is very simple all of east asia is starting from below so they have a huge unemployed you know poorly employed weakly employed underemployed labor okay. so the first thing that you do is use idle labor unemployed resources so when you do that your input factor or the input share in growth is likely to be very high okay so you grow at 10% 2% comes out of technology 8% comes out of inputs that doesn't mean the growth is hollow it simply means that they are doing what is right okay now the same would not be true of america or of china or you know uh, japan today but it was certainly true of japan and china earlier and of east asia earlier when they were catching up so when you are at the frontier you know you grow differently when you are catching up you grow differently mm-hmm. and this distinction is not there in much of the literature and that's where the where the policy maker gets completely confused okay now i've said this much but let me now list out the essential you know why it becomes difficult for everybody to appreciate the east asian transformation let's look at two mainstream you know kind of uh, approaches in the conceptualization i mean theory which you know all economists go through and therefore you know it kind of has a hold over them and then they may not be able to exit out of these you know sim- simplistic or very simple models a good example would be the so called you know pure trade theory model okay yes. see in the pure trade theory model essentially you are you have a highly abstract model okay it's so abstract that it has only two commodities you know and if you promote exports you are discriminating against your imports import importables okay and if you are doing import substitution you are discriminating against exports yes a realistic model where you have more than two sectors for instance if you bring in the non tradeables allows you to do simultaneously export promotion and import substitution which is essentially what these guys did okay and however theory does not have the space to understand this and therefore treats it as laissez faire okay just yes. because you see their their glorious expansion of trade Okay. but actually if you look at mainstream trade theories yes. their stupendous expansion cannot be explained by merely trade theory okay the reason yes. is these are hundreds of times you know south korea for instance had a 360 times increase in manufactured exports over a 15 year period okay taiwan 190 times okay and one can go on china was actually a smaller exporter in 1979 than india it has gone on to become the world's largest Okay. now your mainstream you know exerolin kind of models and so on just cannot explain okay. so that's the reason why you know the intelligence here gets it wrong the other reason is there's just one reason there are another reason which i can see now let's look at your macro models you know macroeconomic models all macroeconomic models treat what is called the full employment level of output for us for third world countries or emerging economies what we would call the you know the capacity output as given so in the short run it's given okay and there are no questions asked about the long run okay but in a catching up economy let's let me call it yf if this capacity output can increase at a certain rate then i can actually push demand so that demand never crosses the capacity in a very significant way to be inflationary so there is actually a glide path all the way you know so there is actually a free lunch that's what i'm trying to say and these guys have hit upon that free lunch okay which your classical or more conventional theory does not allow you to even understand or appreciate okay so now let me put it in a third way okay let's imagine that there are un- unemployed resources particularly of labor okay so what's the marginal cost of labor we all know it's equal to zero yes right so if i can use labor and get even very little out of it okay as long as the output is sold abroad yes. i have made a gain because otherwise the marginal cost is only zero yes. so you know export led growth or what these guys have done is they have engaged their idle labor done all the machinery raised the savings rate to do all that and all that else that is necessary okay exported used the world markets to grow very rapidly okay and who are the biggest beneficiaries of east asia it's actually the advanced countries yes 
because they get the product cheaper and cheaper, cheaper. And cheaper. but these guys don't lose either so therefore they advanced okay so both the left and the right and the conventional academia all of them have got it wrong okay so the only sane you know uh, let me say descriptions or analysis really comes from some of the scholars in these countries okay and i would say that i have struggled hard with this problem and this is the conclusion that i have come okay yeah so that is what the institution model is very briefly i can get into the details if you so desire okay talking about one of the features attributing to the success of east asian economies were the bureaucracy of these economies referred to as embedded autonomy this allowed the state to be autonomous yet embedded within the private sector and enable the two work together to develop policies or change course if the policies did not work how do you see this in the context of india well in no in your question is an assumption yes. okay that the state was the same in all these countries okay that's not true okay, okay. the state ranged from a kind of very right wing state for instance in the korean system okay to a very left wing state in china and in, in vietnam okay vietnam. to a middle of the road left wing transiting to become more you know uh, capitalist in china okay to an extreme right wing one in taiwan okay now it's not the political orientation yes. of the countries which are important okay in the, in the in let's say export led growth or in the east asian transformation okay uh, but what is important is the nature of the state okay and here one would say that the capability of the state is important Okay. now when i say the capability of the state is important i don't mean to say that every state must have the same capability that is shown by singapore which i would characterize as almost a, so highly capable that it's almost like a corporation okay yes. and that doesn't make sense you know for any large country so if one were to rank these states the capable original capability of many of these countries were not you know something to uh, you know drive home about or you know speak very much of course they have built state capability over a period so i would see the state capability as being important however it is something that has coevolved with their success and their success is due to the strategic aspect the strategic you know thrust of following the export led growth okay because that's a guaranteed success okay now you know let me just build a certain point here uh let's go back you know when people say oh you know where how can india do it and so on okay remember the indian state was actually quite competent its competence has reduced it was able to take a very great strategic position in the 50s and uh, so on in fact the import substitution of india i would rank as one of the more successful stories in a matter of nearly 15 years you know the indian economy diversified highly yes now after that you don't have to hang up after having diversified that kind of closed door let's say license raj had done its job now if we like idiots want to hang on to it forever that's our problem there's nothing wrong with the idea that you know you start the whole process of industrialization with import substitution and all of them did that but they quickly changed tack yes including china to go completely export led which means use the advantage that you have built up in the form of a diversified economy and let it loose on the world for their benefit and yours okay so if had india turned tack and turned export led in 64 we would have been ahead of china by quite a significant margin okay unfortunately it was not done even a laissez faire movement from the 64 did not happen which you know people like bhagwati and so on were asking yes. okay Yes. So, yes. so what I'm saying is to to address your question frontally. See, there's another point. You know? Suppose if I say that look, the Indian state is not capable. Okay. Now, whether or not you follow export-led growth, you bloody well need some capability in the state for the simple reason that you can't go on with this kind of pathetic delivery of public services in India. Okay. Yes. The police will soon make India into a failed state. Okay. It's a private army of the government of the day, and there are corrections which are possible. in terms of serving let us say providing public services like drinking water sanitation sewerage education in a school education and so on it's gone from bad to worse okay yes. now so the indian state's capability is falling we know the correctives 
the correctives are in terms of greater autonomy okay reworking the relationship between government and enterprise particularly public enterprise i think it's very important and a bit of education of the people who hold power you see the indian bureaucracy is a class unto itself very capable individuals however mm-hmm. as a system it completely fails now what is the reason there are some significant reasons which are correctable they don't believe in organizations they are person dependents dependent none of the government organizations have a memory and are learning organizations okay so they are forever firefighting they are all glorified operational managers none of them have the time or the wherewithal to sit back and think yes. and brainstorm and come out with something meaningful up front the few such instances when it has happened you know the initiative has come has come from outside such as the gq the golden quadrilateral you know yeah. the ncp actually and so on actually came from the idfc now people like manmohan singh and montek and deepak parekh have understood this and if you see when they had a relatively free i mean a free reign some improvements did take place in the right direction okay so so i would say that there is nothing forever sealed about the indian state i mean the indian state if it's not capable it can improve its capability mm-hmm. it's not like you know we have inherited the stripes of the tiger yes. that would be an success yeah That's okay So, quick question, sir. Short question. Because when you said that we cannot compare small country Singapore like a big country India, can we replicate the Singapore type model to a particular city? No, I am not recommending the Singapore model or any of these countries' model because all have their specificities which we need to understand. Okay. However, and Singapore was not so much an export-led growth case. Okay, it was more of a corporate state. Whereas I would look at China, at Vietnam today. Okay, Thailand. Most importantly, Thailand is a democracy. Okay, uh, and uh, maybe Taiwan. Okay, and all of these together to see what is the essential. See yes. what are the essentials. Okay, all others are non-essential. They can differ. They can vary. You know. So let's not get carried away by you know the over uh, you know the, by the specificities. So the specificities are not important. It's the what unifies them all and when i say unifies it's not just what is common to all of them but which when you put together analytically makes sense all of them spent efforts overcoming what we call the endowments constraint yes. okay now this is well understood in india okay but the belief is look you can't do it now what is this endowments constraint basically educating a bit of land reform may not be that necessary now so that people can participate in a market economy okay so 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 you know japan for instance by 1905 all the children including the girls were in school okay korea from 1964 onwards not no not a single child was out of school china from 68 onwards you know it's clear that very few kids were out of school okay so schooling can we not improve school education can we not just extend the you know the let's say the no nonsense uh, kendriya vidyalaya model all over the country can we not have rational strategies to bunch people bus kids and so on i mean it's it's a simple matter simple. so we can do this so so what one is saying is cooling public health yes. okay this so the so that the 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 you know the the worker can actually participate in the market okay so he has something to offer to the market by way of his skills and some endowments okay agriculture the agricultural constraint needs to be overcome okay none of these countries had an agricultural constraint because they all carried out land reforms of one kind or the other okay mm-hmm. now i'm not saying you do a politically parallel land reform all you need to do is relax the land constraint on agriculture yes let farmers you know who are actually cultivating let them get control over the land if need be compensate the others in some other cases do the reverse so yes. that the incentive to to increase the output is removed at one stroke and when you do that the agricultural output can easily grow at 5 plus okay. and if that is there you have a high speed growth basis okay so these are two things third one is why why ignore the outside world there's a whole world waiting out there remember unlike china or east asia we are in a more advantageous position because by the time we get on to it that is now much of the rest of the world is better than us yes, and therefore the home the, the external market is going to be fantastic even small corrections to our competitiveness should allow us to do wonderfully well 
okay so what i am saying really is that india is ripe and riper than other countries to do it. and if we don't do it my prediction is we not just enter into a trap middle income trap but if we can't break out of the so called lower middle income trap india will collapse finally yes okay because not will go its way with its obscurantism and you know being let loose yeah sure the east station model was largely a story driven by newly industrialized economy of singapore hong kong south korea taiwan popularly clubbed as east station tigers and japan earlier the majority of policies followed by these countries effectively avoided the middle income trap that as you have mentioned just now and that led to development what steps according to you are necessary for india to come out of middle income trap yeah so i mean let's take you know uh, what would be necessary i have already implied you know yes. what i said first of all i think we need to set our education right okay yes. we need to bring in farmers into the system okay and here you know ideological moorings and fundamentally doctrinaire assumptions are not important okay agriculture is not something which can be subject to entirely left to market forces okay none of the east asian countries are competitive in agriculture okay yes. because they just can't have a comparative advantage they are highly restricted in terms of their land land ratio so china is the world's most efficient agricultural producer but it's one of the least competitive japan is again a very efficient producer but it's least competitive these countries however well they do in agriculture technically they will not be able to compete with the rest of the world particularly the land endowed countries australia new zealand canada and so on and they have a plan okay and that's what you see whereas india is going helter skelter we don't know whether to protect agriculture or not we need to but then after protecting we need to liberalize local markets okay we need to carry out land reforms of one kind or the other different in different parts so that agriculture grows so you know when today the middle class is so utterly selfish that they don't want to see a terms of trade rise in favor of agriculture indeed okay. and unless that happens you cannot get rid of rural poverty yes. okay and that means that indian agricultural prices on the whole would be higher than global agricultural prices in the long run okay that it's not so today is only because a lot of our farmers are in a langot you know they just don't have a proper existence and however much they raise their head we kind of bang them back by making them suffer this kind of agricultural penalty terms of trade penalty mm-hmm. so the last 3 years has seen a decline in the agricultural prices related to other prices now if you look china you know faced the same problem in the 80s it did not stop the macroeconomic growth it did not constrain it did not you know come out with a huge liquidity uh, you know cut and so on in order to stop the inflation it understood pretty well that this is a supply side inflation more so a kind of a peculiarly structural one which is a one time one to allow the agricultural sector to enjoy a better terms of trade this happened in the 80s so they tolerated an overall inflation of what 12% with agriculture running at close to 18% inflation okay and then they came out of it they didn't constrain the economy because of this inflation so you don't understand inflation and let me uh, say sorry to say this but the rbi has simply not understood the nature of inflation seriously okay it has not understood that it's supply side and you don't go fighting yes that it has un- it's unable to separate the core from the other it is unable to separate the uh, what we call the expected aspect of inflation the, the secular expected trend you know which can be upward Okay. that has actually never been but it has always changed its forecast conditional on its own actions of what the future inflation would be has been always wrong and in the same direction so you can imagine how wrong it is oh, yes. so the first thing i would say is that macro policy has to be a lot more accommodate okay to allow for growth okay that's yes. the current need of the hour okay and of okay. course you know we need to strategize our exports okay now let me just give you something which will which is actually laughable okay uh here we make a huge statement of make in india yes okay but let's look at the policies okay entirely orthogonal to it yes. we make a huge statement about let's say you know food processing india is the only country in the world with a ministry of food processing okay but it has the least amount of processed foods now the answer to my mind is simple you can't keep going on and on in an administrative operational way 
you need the right policy but what's the policy the taxes gst is hugely discriminative against agricultural processing so if you put tomatoes into a carton you know and sell it into a make a puree of it it attracts 18% duty why the hell would food processing take place okay. so things like that you know so when we probe deeper why does make in india fail tariffs are inverted yeah. only slowly getting corrected okay. negative effect of protection rates okay in a large number of yeah. industries there are long term comparative advantages including you know export including electronics worse okay tie when we tied up on the wto do you know that or what we call the bound tariffs on the most dynamic items okay mobile phones flat screen tv okay solar panels have been bound at near zero or 45% and then you announce bombastic demand growth you know situations or programs get all the chain that get the chinese to import all to supply all the, uh, solar panels and then go and lose the case three times in the in the wto wto you know the wto has laughed its way when i was there taking a bunch of indian trade service officers it came as a shock but not really a shock and it was a shock but not a surprise that let me put it that way that you know we lost the case three times on the solar panel and we still don't have a sense of shame okay simple coordination would have allowed different strategies to have indian domestic value addition in solar okay yes. now in electronics we have tied to such low bound tariffs you can't give a tariff based solution which china did 2015 to 18 years back to create its electronics industry okay yeah. right so yeah. china protected its electronics industry for a while and then given the large home market it could just blow up okay? yeah. Yeah. all the ecosystems could come around whereas we want to put the cart before the horse not give enough protection so our bound tariffs are zero so i can't say that look if you assemble in india you will get a zero duty whereas if you do uh, you know ckd i mean if you do if you, if you get fully imported equipment then it will be 150% because our bound tariffs are some 5 10% yes, so we should go and change these okay then you know ministry of commerce doesn't coordinate with ministry of industry so ministry of commerce is signing away free trade agreements with vietnam and others and ministry of industry is trying to promote electronics one ministry doesn't see what the other is doing Okay. so this kind of immaturity really cheats mr modi of his great project okay. so there is nothing more important than make in india there is nothing more important than swachh bharat okay if you get both these right swachh bharat educate india will improve the endowments endowment of the masses and if you can get make in india right you will have to go exports and if you get it and import substitution at the same time we are the world, one of the largest importers of electronic goods in the world okay. yes. so you know about 80% of our consumption is imported you can actually import substitute that and you know intelligently india should become one of the most competitive countries and export to the entire world you know in 10 years you should be flooding the world markets okay but does our bureaucracy even strategize does it even have a thinking these jokers are forever caught in firefighting Okay. That's it, and that's where the real problem is. Mm-hmm. So these are obvious steps which we need to do. You know, change tack and strategize. It's a phenomenal point, sir, because it's an opportunity in the century. Once in a century, it will come for India, demographic and other things also. So yeah, you have to no, take advantage. Absolutely. Now the interesting thing is, really, really the COVID, okay, and really, really China's stupidity in global, you know, politics. you know where, where it's going aggressive a little too prematurely yes. okay gives a glorious opportunity for india okay. so even if we don't gear up you know rotten apples or ripe apples are going to fall on our head you yes. know all we need to do is actually catch a little bit yes. okay but even that we may not do now of course if you strategize the 21st century should be india century okay there's no doubt about it but it's a foregone conclusion that we'll do nothing of the kind we'll fail on the economic front and therefore the political guys would be forced to you know make people run after cows and buffaloes anyway yeah, yeah. so when we when we talk about factors of growth india has a huge advantage over the world 
with its demographic dividend as we were mentioning however over the last 28 years we have understood that with the mismatch of growth in literacy rate in comparison to the growth in service sector that cannot enable the service sector to absorb india's workforce what options does india have to use this demographic dividend in the most productive way possible yeah i have already said that i mean there's nothing more labor absorbing than an export rate yes okay and uh, it's ready to absorb uh electronics industry can be huge and it's easier to do than even auto okay so what i would say is that export led growth which can spread in across the board and india is ready you know india has competitive advantage in every good app area okay so even while we do software and you know blsi design and things like that design of mobile phones we are very good at that you know the labor intensive semi skilled you know using rural women that kind of thing can only happen on a large scale if we have electronics light engineering okay uh, textiles can you imagine textiles and garments have gotten out of india because of adverse policy okay so these can absorb so you know modi's dream of providing employment actually requires a stroke of all it requires a stroke of the pen not running after you know foreign investors and so on you know you see the poor guys you know uh, I, you know, uh, problem is he sees everything as some as operation. It's not. No. There is strategic. There is policy. Yes. Okay. So yes. the, unfortunately, the advisors have not you know uh, risen up to uh, you know their uh, roles and uh, provided them with that kind of a framework. Okay. So what he's asking for a high speed growth of India, and that cannot come unless you absorb this labor. Now let's come you know straight to this demographic debate. Okay. Now this keeps coming up all the time, and the reason is I think there's a lot of damage which was done by McKinsey when they highlighted this demographic dividend, perhaps unintentionally. Of course, their intent was never to say that it's there for you as something tangible out there which you can pick up. It's a contingency. If you do all that I'm saying, it means if you can really have a high-speed growth process growing where labor is absorbed, then yes, there is a demographic dividend. in itself just because there are so many youngsters it doesn't mean that there is a, going to be a dividend dividend yes okay so it's a potential but the potential dries up if you don't it's like a cow you know it's just given birth feed it well it will give you good milk okay but if you don't if you make mistakes and once it dries up it's gone that opportunity is gone now let's take actually the workforce in india we have one of the lowest participation rates in the world okay and even that participation if you account for disguised employment that means people who think that they are employed but actually are scratching out an existence yeah. it's even lower okay yeah. so practically most of the women are in that sense you know simply not participating and there is no reason why they should you know with such poor job prospects okay so jobs getting the jobs up and running would be actually part of realizing this demographic dividend but let's not go bonkers about it you know the uh, this the reality also is that some 20% of india's workforce has been permanently mired okay oh. when they were young and when they were you know children the malnutrition has not only weakened them in a physical sense but the hand eye coordination is also very weak so many of them will not be able to do the kind of activities with modern technology in the request nevertheless these are not the constraints okay there is always a set of people who are waiting to get jobs and work quite good at working even they might be even be illiterate but you know they are there so this demand is the issue not the supply of labor this whole skills constraint you know government of india was taken on a big ride by organized industry you know that's okay i mean you certainly help development of skills but the point is you need higher employment growth rates okay now if you look at the at the data you see you can't just look at unemployment in india you have to look at employment growth rates okay so because while the unemployment may reduce as it has in the last one month the employment has fallen okay and the labor force okay so the labor participation is also important look at the three together and you'll realize you know, the story that from 2010 11 practically nothing has happened yes okay we have been on a massive recession okay it's the longest recessionary period 
okay and ensured by a government which had put growth uppermost because just by being willing strongly and being emotional about it you don't get it you need that you know that creative that kind of coordinated strategy and that's what is completely missing in this country knee jerk reactions simplistic you know middle class kind of orientations okay given an unfavorable global economy and much change economic dynamics in the past several decades the east asian model may not longer be valid Uh, for the 21st century economy of global overcapacity automated production muted demand what are your views on this what are the future opportunities this is something which i have heard right from my school days okay i can remember the entire left wing in calcutta okay saying that look what the hell you know what is east asian growth and small countries fallacy of composition will ensure that china would never be able to follow that tk up to korea it's fine now that china has done it oh china has done it where is the space the big elephant has walked and therefore there's no track left for us you know so so these are the kind of things which are being said but i'll go back and i'll repeat what i said okay on the demand side it's going to be even better because china has crossed so they are not really in competition on the really labor intensive side of things yes okay they are buyers so a lot of our products which are labor intensive would shift out from china and that gives us an opportunity the chinese and enterprise will also shift and come here so it, this kind of barrier between india and china at this stage you know is not very functional from the long term so i would see china as one of the important investors in india in labor intensive industries in the in the future okay now you might say the world is full of automation and therefore you know what is the hope of labor intensive industries and so on and so forth see remember what i said that the marginal cost of labor is zero if you can employ all of indians in it huh and in high tech industries please do so huh so what is the alternative can you do that you can so what are we talking about whereas i can employ 10% in high tech 20% in moderate kind of industries and the remaining in very labor intensive activities what's wrong huh? we want everybody to be professors is it and robotic experts that's a nonsense that can only be a extreme brahmanistic viewpoint which has been our destruction yes okay so it's an impossible when you really ask what the counter is there is no counter can we grow the world's food with 2% of the world's land that's also ruled out okay so many people say hey, we can develop agricultural exports what nonsense you can do it sure a little bit double triple what we are doing okay more mushrooms get the phytosanitary conditions right even that is difficult okay you sanitary conditions right or animals would not be acceptable in the in the western world they are only eaten where you know uh, where food is really cooked Okay. So promise of the WTO on agriculture was anyway nothing much if you recognize India's land-land ratios. But even if we were to exploit it fully, it would not be much because we still suffer from phytosanitary condition. Yeah. Solve that, even then it won't be great. In some labor-intensive areas, there can be quite a good movement. Give us some buying time, you know, five years, six years, whatever, you know. But beyond that, no. because we don't have the world's land therefore we have to go manufacturing we have to go services now what's the problem with services to the extent you can do it do it so i'm not saying don't do it i'm not saying don't do design they are very important they are our export led growth industries sure i'm saying include manufacturing there's nothing wrong with that indians are not born you know with a stamp which says that they are only good for services and they were born no such thing remember in 1950s india's export of manufactures was higher than that of china india had a world share of tech, uh, share of the world textile industry of 15% which china only achieved after in recent times okay which was the highest in the world at that time india's bicycles were sold all over asia okay so india's net trade in manufactures was hugely positive in the 50s one is not talking about something which is beyond anybody's capacity a huge huge industry in india msmes mid sized all are waiting to get the macro policies right okay. low interest rates you know more aggressive exchange rates and uh, you know um, 
direct support, you know, remove all barriers and of course tariff corrections. Yes. Yeah. Another argument that comes in contradiction to the East Asian model in India is that in East Asia, welfare was conceived as a support system to keep industrial workers on the job. Helping the young, old and poor was seen the responsibility of the family, not of the state. Rural workers got few welfare benefits because the plan was to push them off the farms and into factories. Contrast those attitudes to India. The government is suspicious of the private sector and elections are fought on promises of generous welfare benefits for the poor, the elderly, farmers, many others. What is your opinion of this kind of uh, behavior? Yeah, see, good, good. This question has come up. You know, so what you see today in India, this highly dysfunctional, you know, uh, consumption subsidy and nothing else. Okay, uh, high and when I say I say that at two levels. Okay, uh, direct subsidy is good vis-a-vis indirect or subsidy to the industry. Mm-hmm. However, as long as they are consumption subsidies, uh, they have a problem because they. We are not that rich, and uh, you know, to grow by direct subsidy as a holding out operation. I have nothing against it. In fact, we have been the guys who have been saying that give direct subsidies, endowment subsidies, yes. uh, very early. You know, 15 years ago we talked about it. Today it has been kind of accepted, and don't use price-based subsidies and so on. But if you think that you know the government is messed up, if you think that you know the kind of support or the kind of initiative which in East Asia could not happen in India because of uh, uh, our poor governance. I would say that our poor governance is itself partly a reflection of the failure of our of our enormity, or of having not had a strategy and therefore not having worked now for more than 25 years, maybe 30 years. Okay, so it's that. So let's get back. You know, if, there is a lot of also you know uh, misunderstanding of what happened in many of these East Asian economies. I mean, it's believed that China did not subsidize their uh, or did not support the rural side. That's completely false. You know, China, after the open door policy, uh, changed the agricultural deal by which the agriculture could grow at six percent, and the biggest beneficiaries were rural people. Now, the point is, the rural has to benefit, but how does it benefit? Now, if you take a view that there is no way it can benefit through a normal process of growth, and I have to give them something, yes, then you're making the error. Whereas if you have a employment-oriented strategy which is willing to transfer surpluses to agriculture through the price effect, okay, you don't have to do this driblet NREGS. Yes. Okay? Now don't glorify NREGS. It's a it's a it's a it's required. It's probably one of the best programs going in the country. I would say that. And at this point, it's very important. However, you can't have an economic transition based on NREGS. Okay, you can't have an economic transition based on giving seven thousand rupees of farm subsidy. Okay? You have to think through what are you going to do with the excess production in the currently. Demand side has to grow. Demand cannot grow unless the employment in uh, you know in industry and so on can grow. Unless people become better, well off to buy the fruits, vegetables which are being now produced in excess. Okay, okay. so let's get back. You know what I'm saying is this uh, whole idea that you know. India can't do it, and the West and the East Asian did just one thing that is quite wrong. At certain times, they have also subsidized. Okay, they have promoted their agriculture. They have also protected their agriculture. Okay, but at other times, you know, they have also given massive fiscal transfers. Okay, now that's that's yeah. another problem in India. Now look at our fiscal transfers. We have also done massive fiscal transfers. Okay, for instance, uh, you know. Uh, Goa contributes, let us say, sixteen rupees to the central exchequer, and gets back one rupee, given the uh, finance commission uh-huh. and so on. So Recommendation. This, yeah, this may have gone up after the GST. Okay. Now, in contrast, Bihar contributes one and probably gets back four. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that there is anything wrong per se. Nation building means that poorer areas get. However, what has been wrong, what remains wrong, and what is not even recognized by the finance commissions, is that this kind of dispensation, the form of that dispensation, is very important. If it goes towards merely supporting consumption subsidies, you know, mm-hmm. it becomes a zero-sum game. I give yeah. up, and you get something. However, yeah. I give up for a while, 
and you go and use it to grow even faster than i do it yes. becomes a positive sum game now in china fiscal transfers have been positive sum games okay oh. the interior did not grow as rapidly as the coastal areas okay but soon enough the fiscal transfers began and once the reform happened the interior was the fastest growing area of china so when it entered into the global financial crisis the interior was growing the fastest and it continued to grow even faster till you know 2014 and even now the differential is that the interior is growing faster than the coastal areas now how did it achieve that because the fiscal transfers were functional not just a guilt based support you know family like transfer yes okay so it's not i'm not the head of the family yahan se elder brother se nikal ke you know uh, younger brother because was slightly dumb hai usko de diya aisi baat nahi hai okay i may take from the elder brother and give it here but that guy has to come up because we are not talking of brothers we are talking of economies okay yes yeah. it's a it's a transitory it means it's just there for to build capacity and this is not for consumption and that's a very very valid point that's a phenomenal solution uh when we talk about a uh, states disparity in our country yeah. states as you have mentioned finance commission distributed but these distributions are obviously sometimes in favor of some states sometimes favor of another state but when i was reading last year's economic survey they talked about the dwarf industry you must have heard about that india's msme were not able to convert into big mnc if we compare with the msmes of america and other western countries yeah. how do you see what is the lacuna where india's msme cannot become mncs no i mean i would beg to differ that all msmes must necessarily become large that's an impossibility okay but that's not, of- that's not the point okay yes. i have a book if you want you can look up this this is growth and transformation of small firms i think it remains valid written in 2001 so you know broadly if you have a functional process of growth and high growth what will happen is the following okay you are likely to see an evil, a pattern of evolution of msmes and industrial structure more generally which would fit you know i uh, i'm just forgetting the name you know uh, but you know ishikawa and other scholars were worked this out okay and uh, my answer is the following when you grow the more rapidly you grow there would be a collapse of what we call the household industries Okay. okay this is inevitable the reason is they are inefficient in labor they are inefficient in capital use they are highly damaging to the human agency i mean we rave about some of our handicrafts industries but if you look at the hurt to humans in let's say hand printing of textiles and such other things it's just too much only an absolutely unethical society like ours could have tolerated the work conditions in some of our informal sector industries okay so when you have growth the informal sector comes down and india's informal sector has in that sense household has fallen to less than a third of what it used to be that's good okay but now what happens is a modern small scale what we call the msme really starts somewhere in the middle of the transformation process and that started in india around the 80s right yeah. now they grew but their growth has been constrained precisely because the policies have been adverse because all our macroeconomic interest rate etc policies do not allow local value addition okay. imports are become you know much more profitable so if growth is high these msmes would grow very rapidly okay not all of them would become large okay they would grow in numbers they would grow in value terms they would all support be you know sources of inputs to the larger industries so you know japan and perhaps uh japan actually presents in this sense you know the kind of i would say the i'm not saying the model but somewhere to look you know where you can see the future unfolding see whenever growth was high functional vendor relationships happened okay. whenever growth was low these turned you know parasitic so in a high growth period the relationship between large and small becomes more developmental more positive more you know of a positive sum game when it when the growth becomes less it becomes a more of a negative you know zero sum kind of game okay. so the way out is growth because is number one growth and number two obviously there are policies you know which can encourage these 
fellows particularly if you can work out you know where there is a value to small you know see where is there a value to small economies of owners situation by definition therefore they would be small in the future okay so if you take an automobile cluster okay india would show the similar pattern like japan okay for two reasons one is it's it's the schism in the labor market was similar to that in japan so in just like in japan you are likely to find this three four tiered layer of auto industries okay so it doesn't mean that all tail light assemblies will finally become toyota that's nonsense okay but they'll all be useful to the world okay so this this thing small is not growing what does it mean i mean if if a thousand small units all grow at 10% per annum but they remain small okay it's fine isn't it okay right even if 10 out of them grow become large and the remaining die then there is a problem yes. okay there are still some other small which will become high value you know industries you know iconic kind of industries so yeah. there has to be a science of what you expect the industrial structure to be in late industrialization now once you refer to that you won't make these kind of statements okay these are all naive statements which are based on very little understanding of history they become important in conferences and so on to put each other down okay yeah okay thank you so much sir it was a wonderful session and at last if you could have few words of encouragement for our initiative economics wonderful initiative i hope all the success for you guys get more people involved let there be debate as i said the problem is not going to go away and a crisis you know of this kind allows one an opportunity because it's in during crisis that you know new voices get heard okay yes. and the limitations of old voices are there so you know the be open to the to the possibility that perhaps everything that has been said is wrong okay thank you so much it was one of the wonderful episode of thinking tree especially for the students especially for me as well it's an eye opening okay. and thank you so much my pleasure to have you on my show have yeah i hope policy makers also look at it okay yeah okay thank you you were listening to the thinking tree podcast powered by ecoholics private limited for more information visit www.ecoholics.in